just so proud of a man. I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to the Huntsman. The Huntsman is a specialist in supply chains. And so I wanted to have him on to discuss what was going on with the United States supply chain. There's obviously been a lot of news about shortages and toilet paper and all these other things. And then you had the situation in the Suez Canal. So I asked him to come on in and we had a great conversation that I think you will all get a lot out of and enjoy at the same time. But first, as always, RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. That's RyanBunting.com. He's a great anarcho-capitalist and libertarian. He designed my podcast logo and Pete Quinonez's podcast logo. That's RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. And thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. Enjoy. All right. I am here with the Huntsman, as known on Twitter, otherwise known as Ross. What's going on, my buddy? How you doing, man? It's, uh, it's pretty cool. I, this is the, I think this is the first time I've ever done a podcast where one half of us is uh, actually out on the road and being somewhat productive with their life instead of, you know, sitting fat and happy at a desk like I am right now. So it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, well, I'm not the only, uh, I'm not the only podcaster that's a truck driver. Um, there's, there's quite a few of us out here. That's some amazing ones. I just haven't been on any of them yet. (laughs) (laughs) We have to change that, man. (laughs) Well, Gord, who introduced us and, and may God rest his, uh, his, uh, Twitter account soul. Um, you know, he drives and has just got some unbelievably compelling stories and really amazing, uh, you know, things that he talks about. And, and I, I don't think we hear enough from the people who actually do the work, right? It's the politicians, it's the policymakers, it's the corporate CEOs. It's all these guys that get the, the screen time and they get to, you know, feed whatever garbage you're talking about directly into the ears of people. And, the people that are forgotten are the ones that, that are at the ground level that are actually doing the work that keeps America moving. So it's, um, it, it can't, the, the voices of, you know, the, the, the laborers, the workers, the blue collar, man, that, that those voices cannot be heard enough. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the libertarian Institute, but I always say, I try to give, kind of the freedom perspective from a a blue collar kind of point of view because sure most of us don't like to be micromanaged you know most of us you know and especially from a government that we don't know like even semi-personally we we don't Mm -hmm. get to talk to these people we don't have any interaction with these people and what engagement we do have with them is usually negative and we Mm -hmm. don't we don't appreciate hearing from the irs or or any of these other you know federal institutions so no for the most part these agencies exist to get in the way of actual work you know whether by bureaucratic inertia or um you know the 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 role of you know separating 
people from, people from their money as much as possible. You know, there, there's a really there's an interesting debate debate to be had about a lot of these things as far as what the what the common good is and all of that. But um, you know, by and large, it's it's really the, certainly the influence and the voice of one side's heard a lot more than the other. And you know, we would certainly you know the the, the public debate around a lot of things, uh, particularly when it comes to things like supply chains, which most people are more aware of in the last year. Um, we would be better served. Uh, as a country and as a people by everybody having more awareness of what it's like to be a longshoreman or what it's like to be a truck driver or what it's like to be a warehouseman or, you know, be, be a mariner working on one of the ships. Um, when you have a recognition of how our spending appetites and our consumer habits drives the lives of so many people in that ecosystem, I think people would probably look a little bit differently at our policies and the way we operate. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I've been known whenever I get into conversations with the uh, the more progressive side of the spectrum to ask them what what my fair share is to pay when I spend ninety six percent of my time out on the road mm-hmm. and only only get about four percent of my life to spend with my family and my and my kids. So mm-hmm. so have I sacrificed enough, or do I still owe you something, or? Where, where, where does that, where's that cutoff point that I've paid my fair share for society? Yeah. I mean, I think the average, the average truck driver and, and what a lot of people don't even realize is, is there's, there's certainly a stratification or I won't say hierarchy, but certainly a, a distinction between how the different types of drivers, you know, in that particular case, spend their time. Yeah. Um, someone can say I'm a truck driver and they may be just a local route guy for an LTL carrier, just doing pickups all day at warehouses, or they could be an over the road guy. They could be doing high hazardous type stuff where they've got a really difficult job or they could be carrying bulk liquids or they, you know, pretty much always have to worry about fluid surge. So, you know, there, there's so many different aspects, even within that very relatively small career niche, um, that people don't realize. And it's, it's a lot, it, it is, it is an enormous sacrifice to be a truck driver. Um, you they do to, it for their families. You used to manage uh, truckers, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to what you're doing now. Yep. Um, so give us a little background about who you are and what you do, because people have no idea why I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I started out my career in the mid 2000s doing managing drayage, which is container trucking for people who don't know that, you know, the really specific term, but it's the the trucks that you see hauling around, you know, ocean containers, 20 footers, 40 footers, sometimes 45s and occasionally even 53s. But um, so I started out doing drayage. And so I was booking the ocean freight. I was supervising the loading and uh, lot management of the containers and then also managing uh, all the drivers that we had that were taking things, you know, to and from uh, the railhead in our case, we were based in Chicago. And that was, that was really an interesting experience to start into right out of college. Um, I had been doing grain trading, uh, at a grain elevator for one of the big grain companies prior to that. Um, but man, I, I hated that. I, I went through the, I went through harvest of 06, which was the first year corn breach $3. And, uh, I'm from a bit of an agriculture background. So I knew that was abnormal. I knew we were coming for some really weird times and, I kind of just hated grain trading, man. I thought it was going to be like trading places where I was going to need to put a suit on and, you know, make a bunch of money, you know, corn, you know, corn on the, the orange, you know, orange juice, frozen orange juice concentrate market. But it, uh, 
it wasn't like that. And, and I pretty quickly discovered I loved logistics. I loved uh, making things happen and making things move uh, that wouldn't ordinarily, you know, be done quite as efficiently. So um, started out in, you know, in the logistics side, doing grain export, managing kind of all pieces of it. Uh, from there, uh, got into more of the white collar professional side of the industry where uh, I was doing a lot of the sales to the international buyers overseas for things like specialty crops, uh, group purchasing for farmers, uh, chemicals, fertilizers, things like that. Uh, certainly did a lot with um, the truck side of the operations for them as well, as far as group purchasing of equipment, uh, compliance uh, for drivers on farm, things like that, because it varies from state to state. So that was a, that was an interesting experience because that, that got me more into the regulatory side of it. And I really pretty quickly developed a hatred for all things DOT, FMCSA, all of that, right? And um, so, and, and have since subsequently done other things that, that uh, from, you know, kind of running my own trucks to doing bulk liquid type projects to uh, being a truck broker for a while, which if I ever have to go back in a truck brokerage, will be the day I gave up on life. Um, I respect the hell out of the people that do it right, but it's a, it's truly a brutal cutthroat industry um, that's got an awful lot of scummy elements within it, um, and that really make it hard on the shippers, the receivers, and the drivers themselves, because um, it's so competitive, it's so ruthless, and so you get a lot of that boiler room, Wolf of Wall Street type of behavior where uh, guys will do very dishonest things to make a buck at the expense of everybody else in the deal. Um, so I don't ever want to do that again if I don't have to, but I'm grateful to the ones that do it right. Um, and then these days, you know, it's all, it's pretty much all international. Uh, although I'm working with a lot of customers right now at the company I work at to integrate the international piece with the domestic final mile and, and get to more of maybe a streamlined holistic approach to their supply chain, as opposed to the uh, mix of all the different domains, not really talking to each other, which is a problem in most companies. Most companies are very inefficient. Uh, with their supply chains. The right hand never knows what the left hand's doing. Um, so I'm trying to solve that problem for a few of my customers right now. Yeah, and and that's kind of a, that's where Gord had introduced us was mm -hmm. um, he was, I'm in a Slack channel with him and he mm -hmm. had uh, posted some of your threads in there and I started reading some of your threads. So it was, it was much more the international side of things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when when COVID came in, there was such a there was such a strain on on the supply chain, and yeah. you 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 seem to have maybe not all the answers, but you seem to at least recognize and understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I remember earlier this year, I live in a small town in uh, southeast Texas, and we didn't really feel the impact until 2021 it really didn't hit us mm -hmm. and i remember the first time i realized that it was starting to affect our lifestyle was i guess it was probably in february my wife went to uh to the little grocery store down the road and she was going to buy some clorox wipes and i had heard that there was a shortage on clorox wipes i had heard that clorox had had was having issues with the supply chain, but it wasn't until my wife directly told me, I can't find bleach. I can't find Clorox wipes. I can't find anything mm -hmm. that I was like, Oh, Oh shit. This is going to start affecting us. Now, mm -hmm. luckily for us, usually every spring I try to plant 
you know, a little bit of garden some, mm-hmm. have some have some stuff growing so that you know, we have some really nice fresh foods, especially chilies because we're down in the south, we like our spicy food. So mm-hmm. um so we had already planned on doing a lot of stuff, but we ended up doing a lot more because I was like, I don't know how much this is going to affect us. And I don't know for how long, especially mm-hmm. once the freeze hit, we started noticing that meat was starting to get short, that we were having yes. trouble finding different types of meat. And she would send me, she'd be like, Oh, go to the store and get like a pork roast. So I can make you a roast for when you're on the road, you have something to eat. And I would come back. And all they would have, you know, was that what I don't even remember what it's called, like the sirloin roast, where it's just like the strip. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Oh, I hate cooking this. There's not enough fat in it. Blah, blah. I'm like, They had nothing else. You told mm-hmm. me to get a pork roast. This is all I could find. And, and so she was like, What are we going to do? And here, I guess the last couple of weeks, it hadn't been so bad, but it, it did make me well aware that there is something broken. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's beyond just the inner city. So what's happening right now that, that people are, are feeling the effects of? So you have an awful lot of interconnectedness or, <clears throat> excuse me, interdependence, you know, certainly within the food supply chain in particular. You know, in, in the example of the Clorox wipes, uh, you really have sort of three main inputs. You, you've got the the, the paper that, that makes the cloth, right, that the wipes are made from. Uh, you've got the plastic container and you've got the chemicals that, that are impregnated into that cloth uh, to make a wipe, right? And you only have really three three basic components to it. And when you're talking about food, most people think, well, you know, it's, it's meat, you know, kill the pig. <laughs> Take it to a slaughterhouse, kill the pig, and it gets it goes into packaging. Um, but in the U.S., we were running into packaging shortages. A lot of our packaging in the United States is not manufactured here. It's imported from overseas for places that can make it for pennies on the dollar compared to some of the types of products we can make here. So you could have a cellophane shortage for wrapping it, a label shortage for the labels, right? Because a lot of these labels are made in you know, China, Vietnam, Malaysia, wherever. Um, you've got the styrofoam packing that the meat goes in. Then you've also got the meat itself. You have all the inputs into that meat, which is going to be a, probably a pretty specific ration uh, of, of, of grains and other feed ingredients to feed that animal out uh, to become whatever constituent components of meat that it gets turned into at the, at the, at the, uh, the butcher shop or the slaughterhouse. So you've got all of that. So you've got all the feed ingredients. And then you've got the guys like you, whose job it is, is to bring it, uh, you know, that, that pig, that hog, will move from the farm to a meat processing facility, from a meat processing facility to a grocer or food distributor warehouse, you know, a cold chain warehouse for storage. And then from there, it'll move to your local grocery store. So it's being touched four times minimum uh, on its journey from farm to your fork. It's got multiple components in it. It's got the fuel uh, that's used. It's got all the feed. Uh, It's got the labor. And then you've got all the other ingredients that go into actually packaging that thing and putting it on the shelf. Any one of those can be extremely disruptive to the food supply chain in a local area. So what we saw really in the last year was a few things. The United States did not produce, uh, normally we produce a pretty excess amount of uh, sort of your staple grains that get used uh, for meat. You know, I joke about the, the food our food eats, right? Um, and primarily that's corn and soybeans or co-products thereof that come out of the processing where um, you know, in the case of corn, it gets turned into, you know, ethanol through the dry grind process. 
the main outputs to source dried grains of solubles. You can substitute that into a ration. Uh, a corn, you know, what would normally be cracked corn back in the day is now, you know, blended in with DDGs. So the less of that that's produced, the higher the price, of course. And then you had the issue of Brazil did not produce as much uh, in the last year as they normally do. Uh, Ukraine, which is a primary breadbasket for China for corn, did not, you know, they got very droughty through the growing season and very much saw a huge yield hit. And then China could not produce near enough to what their own demand curve was uh, because they got flooded out. You know, 20 to 30% of their crop got wiped out and they lied their asses off about it because that's what they do. Uh, but it was, it was about 20 to 30% by what I was able to estimate. And so now you've got the second largest, maybe even the largest now consumer of corn in the world uh, is deficit on its own production. It's traditional bread baskets of Brazil and Ukraine are also deficit. And they had to come to the U.S. and buy up whatever inventories we had available coming out of harvest that wasn't forward sold to food processors or ethanol plants or whatever. Um, in the case of soy, you know, soy goes into just, just about everything. Um, numerous uh, food and feed ingredients come out of this, you know, out of soybeans, uh, in addition to a lot of industrial chemical applications. So um, we didn't produce tons of that either. So now the economics of corn and soybeans are such that both are pretty profitable to grow right now. Um, but what's going to happen next is that $6 corn and $14 or $15 soybeans means $350 to $450 cash rents for an acre of land in the Midwest uh, on, on good productive ground. It means the fertilizer bills are going to be way higher uh, for the 2022 pre-purchase. Uh, your chemical bills are going to be higher. The seed bills are going to be higher. So for this very brief limited period of time, farmers, you know, in the U S are going to be able to make a lot of money, uh, but it's going to go right back out the door and much higher input costs. Right. And the second, the supply and demand curve uh, inverts again, and we're back to plenty of supply. The prices come back down. The inputs go back down much slower. Uh, so once, <laughs> once the input prices have gone to a certain level, they, they return to quote normal or equilibrium, a lot slower than the futures market-driven pricing uh, of the, you know, the, the crop themselves does. So now we're in a situation where meat, you know, meat products, livestock, whether it's poultry or swine or, or you know, or uh, cows, beef, are going to be eating uh, a lot more expensive product um, for a, a pretty durable amount of time throughout the rest of this year. Fuel prices are up, you know, road diesel in the U.S. is over $3 now, which is something you're obviously very acutely aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, not, maybe not in Texas or Louisiana, but in a lot of other parts of the country, I would not want to be a truck driver in California right now or New York, for example. Yeah, it's still up about 40 cents a <laughs> gallon here. So Yeah, I mean, you're still you're still probably pushing high 290s there it's, in Texas. Yeah, or? I think I, uh, I filled up yesterday, I think. I mean, we get, because I'm, I'm with Crete, so we get a, a, a deal you know, for buying mm -hmm. bulk, but I think it was like 289. Yeah. There's a lot of dudes that are going to be cussing you even at 289 like that. That yeah. look at that dude bragging about his low fuel right. prices. What a dick. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> so, hey, you really want to hear me brag about it. I don't have to pay for it. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, you're right. Just said, <laughs> put, put, it, put it on the fuel card. Yeah. Um, so I don't pay that close of attention to it. <laughs> it's just like, Oh, I'm running low on gas. It's time. But, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, so it's it's a situation where all of the inputs are up. Meat prices are not going to come back down. Um, that's going to be a limiting factor on production as well, as far as the ability to make it. 
Um, and in the last year, we saw an issue of, for you know, pretty famously, Smithfield had to shut an entire uh, hog slaughterhouse down. Meat, well, nobody wants to call it slaughterhouse anymore. Meat processing facility um, had to shut the whole thing down because of a COVID outbreak, uh, which took, I think it was like 8% of the, the, the pork processing capacity of the U.S. went offline with that one plant. Uh, if JBS Swift or Cargill or somebody had to shut their, you know, one of their big, you know, beef, uh, beef meat processing facilities down. And this, was all, and this was all due to packaging? Uh, some, I mean, there, there was major packaging deficits for a time. And uh, some of it was the cost of feed? Mm-hmm. Some of it's cost of feed, some of it's COVID, some of it's the inability of uh, drivers to be found to move stuff to market. So if you're a guy who's normally taken x cents per mile um to move uh you know you're getting paid as a company driver say and another company's got high value retail freight and they're willing to pay an extra 10 cents a mile uh to come be a company driver and do your thing or if you're an owner operator you're going to take whatever the most profitable load is that can be carried in your trailer right Uh, so if you've got a reefer trailer and you've got a choice between carrying a cold chain pharmaceutical for eight thousand dollars for the load or uh carrying frozen meat uh, that consumes a lot more fuel in your gen set and all of that. Then you've got, you know, and they're going to pay you 4,000 to move that same load of meat. Well, right. pharmaceuticals is obviously going to get the play. So um, we had this huge displacement due to COVID, due to uncertainty, due to uh, ports shutting down, due to railroads, to, uh, idling equipment that wasn't moving goods, uh, you know, profitably. And everything just got so disrupted. And now we're in this V-shaped period where, where prices have skyrocketed from the low to, you know, low threes uh, in a relatively short period of time to $6 cash at the farm gate right now. And it's going to have these, these really durable, long-lasting one or two-year effects on them that meat prices were up because availability was tight due to COVID, due to trucking capacity, due to higher priced inputs. Now it's going to be harder to come by because... Or if you, I mean, if you can get it, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Right. So it's, it's, you know, I'm certainly, you know, in, in my own case, I have a, I have a large, uh, you know, standing for, you know, floor freezer. And uh, I went in on, you know, I went in on half a side of, you know, half a side of beef. Uh, you know, so I bought half a cow to do the feed finish this year. I bought half a hog um, and I did some chicken as well. And so my meat needs are going to be taken care of. Uh, you know, I'll be through last year's supply here, probably middle of the year. I'll probably have to shop from the store for a while, but then come fall, uh, I'll be fully restocked for, for 12 months for, for a family of six. Um, you know, so it's, it's a situation where, and whether it's a family of, uh, one or a family of 10 or whatever it may be, um, it's, it's going to be harder to meet your needs in the coming time. And that's just on the fresh stuff, you know, that's, Right. I'm talking about produce and vegetables, same sort of deal, very sensitive to transportation capacity and, and rates. Uh, but even, even the imported stuff, right? We get a lot of rice from overseas. We get canned goods from overseas, things like that. Uh, certainly the displacement of ocean freight capacity, congestion, things like that is, is going to cause shortages on the shelves if it's not already. Um, so we're in, a, we're in a very difficult situation. The U.S. has been so used to abundance for so long that most people have no idea what it's like to go to the grocery store and see an empty shelf of anything. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody was freaking out earlier um, when at, at the very beginning of COVID about toilet paper and 
that happens to be what I, what my route is. Um, I'm, I run for Georgia Pacific. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all I'm running is paper products, you mm-hmm. know, which I haven't had a shortage of toilet paper because every time there's a damaged box, I get to take it home and ta-da, I get three years of toilet paper for, <laughs> <laughs> if, there, if there's ever an apocalypse man you're you're gonna be you're gonna be like the the water king from mad max exactly exactly <laughs> so, but for toilet paper i remember my family telling me oh my god i can't find toilet paper i'm like if you need toilet paper just come over to my house i have some i'll give you some i got a few rolls it's not a big deal i have i have a whole damn i have a i have a whole damn closet just nothing but paper towels and toilet paper that's all that's in this closet you're so fixed you, for it man oh yeah for a long for quite a while and as soon as i got down to probably like 20 rolls another mm-hmm. box was damaged out of broadhead home so i was like all right whatever this, you know, it's the best yeah exactly <laughs> fell off the forklift, damn it. one of the <laughs> one of the few benefits of of driving so but it but yeah we saw that and i went on my buddy scott horton's show and and, and was talking about that and i was like mm-hmm. everybody needs to calm down like georgia pacific has doubled their production they're they're mm-hmm. they're pushing out toilet paper and paper towel products as fast as they can mm-hmm. and uh but but th- what you're talking about is, is is completely different i mean you're talking mm-hmm. about just i mean this is libertarians will understand this i don't know if you've ever heard this but this is the eye pencil problem, right? So this is this is the the issue with why you can't charge the labor theory of value for a pencil is because you know you have to have the rubber for the tires and the trucks that haul the rubber for the eraser that have to haul the aluminum that haul the lead that all these different mm-hmm. products that go into just creating a pencil. And this is why one person can't create a pencil. It takes Mm -hmm. thousands of people to be involved in this process. So what you're talking about is ultimately the eye pencil problem is if one part of this breaks down, then the entire process breaks down and it Mm -hmm. creates, it creates a, a system that is not only becoming more expensive, but also more scarce. Mm-hmm. And again, as you said, Americans aren't used to scarcity. It's just not in our vocabulary in the 21st century. So no, we don't have, we don't know how to live. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, Americans for so long have lived uh, according to the value system of, um, and this is by and large. Obviously, there's a lot of exceptions that prove the rule, but. Um, you know, by and large, the theory is not, uh, I should buy a bidet, um, you know, to clean my butt when I'm at home, I've got toilet paper. I mean, I can get toilet paper anytime I want. It's cheap, you know, a giant mega roll pack that'll last me a thousand trips to Taco Bell, uh, you know, is, is eight bucks. I can live with that. You know, so we, we make these compromises based on a cost and availability or perceived cost and perceived availability. And uh, we develop these habits that are very bad as, as far as being able to be resilient or even anti-fragile uh, in the event of scarcity or shortages. Uh, I'll be in okay shape, but that's only because I've consciously made the effort to do things like stockpiling, what I can't produce myself or can't acquire myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where I, where I don't have the ability to do that, I've cultivated the kind of relationships that uh, will serve you know, me and, and my tribe as it were well in the event of scarcity. 
right. um, because I have useful skills. You know, I can barter my skills. And yeah. if fiat currency goes away tomorrow and there's no such thing as money, uh, I still have the ability to be very valuable uh, and, 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 you know, provide for myself. Um, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people have fake jobs that only exist because we have inefficiencies in our economy or we have these made up aspects of our economy that in, in extremists and in, in a, uh, you know, in more of a, a leaner times uh, when everything is red and tooth and claw, um, those jobs don't exist. Uh, an insurance adjuster job does not exist uh, <laughs> on, on the other side of, of Armageddon. Sorry, a farmer. Is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my mom, and, and, my mom, that's what my mom does. <laughs> well, not it, so much. And, anymore, and I'll tell you basically. This, <laughs> yeah, it's it's in, in a job like that's a really good example of when you're when you're left of bang, so to speak, when you're left of crisis and disaster is incredibly important. It's even more important when you're right of a crisis or disaster, as long as the main construct of the economy and the society endures. So nobody is needed more than an insurance adjuster after uh, an event like Katrina, right? right? Hurricane Katrina. Um, they were the busiest people on earth other than, other than, you know, like the national guard and, uh, you know, paramedics and other first responders. Um, so, but then there, there comes a point where if all of civilization were to break down, there are still essential jobs and services and capabilities that a human being should have that most people simply don't have. Um, because we are, you know, we're, we're in that, that we're in that the cycle of turnings, right? The strong side generational theory where you have, <clears throat> you know, hard, you know, hard men create good times, good time, you know, whatever. I, I forget how it is, but I, I feel like in some ways we're in the weak men create hard times phase of that. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to remember how to do more with less as a country in the short to intermediate term, I think, than, you know, maybe we've become accustomed to in sort of the Pax Americana era. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and you've written um, on on about the uh, about truck about the truckers and and mm -hmm. how the age of truckers have gone up. And this is, mm -hmm. I, I think, ties right into what you're just saying, is the the kids coming out today are being taught that they don't need to do jobs like drive a truck, right? Mm -hmm. And and so they're they're going getting these ridiculous degrees and who knows what the fuck white gender studies i, I have no idea what the underwater basket weaving is my is my go-to example of uh, absurd college degrees yeah i mean it, they it, and then they end up with a job at starbucks and, and they don't understand why they can't make a living it's like you have no skill you there you don't know how to do anything that's productive that anybody will pay you for right and just because you went at hundred thousand dollars in debt doesn't mean we owe you anything you know mm -hmm. that i mean that was just a really bad decision on your part and you know there probably should have been an adult in your life to say hey probably that's probably not the best thing to do but so so you see this the the increase in age in truck drivers mm -hmm. and then what they always try to say is there's a shortage on truck drivers well no it's because the experienced truck drivers out here, including myself, are mm -hmm. tired of our wages not keeping up with inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not, I mean, I'm better off than I was a few years ago, but it's mm -hmm. not because my wage increases. It's because I've, my 
kids have gotten older and I'm not paying child support on them anymore, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so <laughs> my, my lifestyle ultimately is kind of plateaued because mm-hmm. the industry isn't keeping up with the wages. And, no. and so it, there's been this artificial, you know, lowering of prices on goods due to that fact, due to the fact that many, mm-hmm. that the, that the logistics industry is not keeping up with inflation, especially on, on the productive side. So it's, can, you, um, can you speak to that a little bit about what's been yeah, going on there? Absolutely. So the, the, the trucking industry in particular has kind of been under assault on for, for, from all sides, right? Uh, the cost of equipment is higher. Um, you used to be able to get a Mac or a Kenworth or, you know, a Freightliner or whatever, I'm certainly not going to get into the trucker brand loyalty debates because it's it's bloodier than the uh, the Ram Ford you know Chevy debates, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's uh, God, man. I, I have I've seen uh, fistfights over you know my my brand is better than your brand, but um, well, well Creep puts me in a Freightliner, and I hate this damn thing. And, and it's not because it's a Freightliner; it's because it's an automatic, right? I, really? Oh yes. no. Yeah. So oh, see, that's, that's, that's you're missing worst, so much of the experience, the man. Thing. Yes, that's the worst thing. You, you, know, you don't I, have your 17 gears. <laughs> I've driven I've driven 18 speeds, I've driven 13 speeds, I've driven 10 speeds, and this they went completely automatic. And I'm like, please stop doing this to me. Just put me put me in a 1986 18 speed fucking Mac and let me just go to town. Give me a give me a 1982 cab over that looks like Optimus Prime, man. I'll yes. be super happy with that, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah. So from the trucker side, and and to some extent, this is true across the board, right? Whatever the mode of transportation is, but it's really true with truckers. The equipment is more expensive. Uh, fundamentally, the fuel is more expensive. You are driving as a driver shorter hours, um, and and when I do the math for people, they don't. They, they, they think, well, okay, well, hours of service is a good thing, right? It's, it's the, they're, they're on the road less. They got more time to be able to get out of the truck and, and whatever. And, you know, when, when I tell people, I'm like, look, just a few years ago, like it was like 12 hours was the hours of service, right? And I think before, at some point when I started my career, I think it was like 14 hours you could go before you had to shut the truck down, right? When I started driving in 2003, it was a. Uh, it was sixteen and eight, and you could drive. It was that's right. It was sixteen and eight. Yeah, it was sixteen and eight, and of those sixteen on, you could drive twelve hours. Now, now Correct. Texas still has an oil field exemption. As long as you don't leave the mm-hmm. state of Texas, you have an oil field exemption where you can still do sixteen. A lot but, of midwestern states have a farm exemption that exists either partial or around the year, because there's not enough truck capacity to get grain out of the fields. Right. Um, yeah. or, or, you know, to the elevators from the farm. So, yeah, those exemptions do exist. But by and large, I think it's I think it's 10 and 14 now. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of and a lot of companies, even if you're staying within the state of Texas. And yeah. I, I imagine in the Midwest, it's the same thing. As long as you don't leave the state, you you qualify for the exemption. A lot of these companies have gotten so finicky about these mm-hmm. exemptions because the federal government has started coming down on them and started yes. fining the companies so that mm-hmm. a lot of these companies won't even do the exemption anymore. 
they won't even allow you to, to go by the exemption anymore. The average, the average person doesn't realize the extent to which Big Brother has also invaded your job. Uh, and in particular, I'm thinking of e-logs, um, you know, so electronic logs that are tied to your GPS and tied to your transit time and all that. Is it good that the, that the dispatch knows exactly where you are? Yeah. In the event of an emergency, that's freaking great. If you roll your truck and aren't able to get a distress, you know, get a, get an emergency call out. It's nice that they will be alerted that you haven't moved for 30 seconds and they'll call authorities for you. Um, what's not good is, is that there was always a huge amount of flex that was built into the industry around driver, you know, driver's hours when it was all paper logs. And I'm not, I'm not giving away any secrets that people, at least in our industry don't know, but the average person may not be aware of the fact that this term strong solo even exists. Right. Um, you know, when I, when I did truck brokering, even, which wasn't terribly long ago, it was 10 years ago now, um, we, we had drivers that we knew, you know, independent owner operator types, that I knew if I put them on a load, we, and, you know, e-logs wasn't really a thing a decade ago. It's pervasive now. It's everywhere. Every company's yeah. on it. I've been for, what, five or six years now, I think. It's like, um, it's, it's required now. They yeah, I think, I think Warner was maybe the first fleet carrier and then Schneider to, to, to e-log all their trucks. But I know uh, Transport America, Transport America, yep. when I drove for them in 2012, we were, mm -hmm. we were on e-logs. Yeah. yeah, it was... Uh, once adoption started to be mandated, that the dominoes fell pretty quick, but because you didn't want to get pulled over by a you know state trooper and you know, not have an e-log unit in your truck, but um, well, and you also know, so, if you if you're like it, it, you have a big sticker on the side of your truck that says e-log, and if they see that, they don't even ask for your logs. They're just like, okay, yep. whatever. No, they're gonna go look for a busted tail light or a loose wiring harness. Exactly. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna figure something else out to <laughs> fuck with you. I actually know several drivers who will leave little shit wrong with their trailers or with their cabs or with, you know, the chassis or whatever, just, just some little, it's going to be like a $50 fine type of deal because they know that if a state trooper has pulled you over and has decided to inspect your truck, he's not leaving until he finds something. Right. So, you know, he's going to give you a ticket for something to justify his time stopping yeah. you. But, um, and that's just the nature of perverse incentives, right? Which is actually a term most libertarians are probably really familiar with too. Yep. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, I think the first time I encountered that term was one of Milton Friedman's books. But yeah. so the the nature of driving ha has changed so much, even in the last decade, where not only are your hours shorter, uh, now they're enforced by Big Brother watching you with the e-logs. Um, now you have a situation where when you do that math compared to what the industry was 10 years ago prior to e-logs when it was still, I think, 12 hours of drive time in a day. If you take that two hours and you add it up over uh, five days of driving time in, in, a, in, a, in a normal work week, that's 10 hours of drive time that you have lost. And 10 hours of drive time is an entire extra day of driving almost. That's 650 miles you're not covering as a driver a week reduced. When you scale that across every over the road and regional and, and medium, inter, you know, intermediate distance haul trucker, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of lost productive miles on the road in a given week that has been displaced and removed from the industry completely. So that's loads that, that are sitting on the dock that, wouldn't, that didn't used to be. Um, that's drivers out of position to pick a load up that they normally would have been able to do. That's a lot of issues. And so now while the cost of getting you to a load has gone up, 
that's not still translating an extra pay to you because you're driving fewer miles and you're driving fewer hours. So not to, mention, oh, not to mention the fact that it, even though the majority of speed limits on interstates is 70 or 75 miles an you're hour, still governed at 68. You're, you're governed at 62 because 62. the insurance wow. company will give, give your company a discount. That's and right. The only way I yeah. can go over I can go over 62 miles an hour if I have my cruise control set, which now I have this whole fucking system, which, mm -hmm. which will stop my fucking truck <laughs> in the middle of the damn road for no fucking reason. Tell me I'm about to be in a goddamn collision because it has these sensors all over the front of my damn truck. And, and it's just like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what, what is all this? And it, it is it is AI in, in, to an extent. It is. Where yep. you don't need, you, it's turning drivers into steering wheel holders. Well, and it is. And, and drivers used to take a lot of pride in the professionalism of being a trucker. You're piloting an 80,000 pound missile at 70 miles an hour, 62 miles an hour, you know, down the highway. That's an enormous responsibility. And, and that's why so many truck drivers are such fantastic drivers out of their trucks as well, because it's, it's like, being a motorcyclist. It's like you're having to watch out for everybody else, not just yourself. Um, so the professionalism of trucking to a large extent has been removed. Um, 20 last number I saw was like 20% of America's truck driving force is now foreign born. Um, not that that's a negative thing, um, but it, it does introduce some distinctions to it. So I won't, I won't call out any uh, countries or, you know, certainly nationalities in particular, but what you have now in certain cities is where certain groups of immigrants have clustered, they tend to get into transportation. So in St. Louis, um, you'll have a lot of Eastern European. Uh, in Chicago, you'll have a lot of, uh, you know, Northern and, and Eastern European as well. Cleveland, same deal, but then you get out to Los Angeles, you get into Columbus, Ohio, you get into New York. And it's going to be other cultures. And what you have here is they're willing to work. And they, by God, they will get in a truck and they will freaking drive. They will work. Um, but what that's doing also is it has a bit of a depressed effect on wages uh, in those regions because they're willing to drive for a little bit less than, than a pro trucker's been doing it 30 years. And maybe he wants that short haul route, right? Um, you get into the issue of, uh, communication barriers and things like that, which does exist. I know for a fact it exists. I've run into it myself many times. Um, so we have a lot of these inefficiencies where it just, it used to be professional drivers, uh, just doing their thing. They really enjoyed it. You know, in a lot of cases they enjoyed it, man, and enjoyed the back injuries from the rough ride in those old trucks before you had, you know, before you had your big floater seats. But, right. um, you know, certainly they have, um, there was an element to it where people were really proud of it, man. You look in the seventies, like, dude, it was cool to be a truck driver, right? Um, yeah, you had Smokey and the Bandit. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. dude. Like freaking. Uh, what, what was his name? Oh God, I always remember it. I remember him for Smokey the Bandit, and I remember him for uh, which was which was actually Gord's avatar on Twitter for a long time. Uh, was Jerry Reed's character from Smokey and the Bandit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it was, it was cool. Right. And, and it was, it was the whole freedom, man. Like, like do kids were talking in trucker lingo, a 10 for their good buddy, you know, like that stereotypical stuff. And everybody had a CB in there. Yeah. Car. We all had CBs. I, my first, yes. I, I had a, uh, I had a little Nissan pickup 
five the speed. CB radio and first thing I did was go buy a CB and put it in there yeah, so I could so I could listen to the the truck traffic man because like those conversations were just phenomenal. Now I won't I won't even put one in my truck anymore. I I just don't have one. They talk to you on cell like, phones whatever. now. You dispatch them call you on cell phones. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, well, it all turned into ridiculous nonsense too. But I remember sitting in my before I was even driving. I remember sitting in my cousin's truck, and we were all jacking around, and and we were you know like messing with truck drivers and talking shit, and you know acting like we're lot lizards, and you know acting like we're gonna sell them some pussy or whatever, and you know like all kinds of shit. We were just having- so many people, by the way, who, who who do not have experience with your podcast are gonna see this when I retweet it and listen to it, and they're gonna wonder what the hell a lot lizard is. <laughs> You're gonna have to do and a I'm thread not, on it. I, I, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just a thread on all the goofy, like the goofy terminology and, and experiences that yeah, truckers have. Right. It, it's uh, got it. It's extraordinary. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the uh, but but it's, so much has changed. But and and a lot of it, a lot of it comes out of bureaucratic. I, do I want to give them the benefit of the doubt? No, because I'm in, in so many ways opposed to, I'm not opposed to regulation, but I am opposed to stupid regulation that introduces a lot of inefficiencies. Some regulation is good. It's a lot safer to work in a warehouse in the U S than it is in China, for example. Right. Um, you know, that's good. That's, that's a net good. Uh, there comes a limit where maybe the best intentions tip over to just outright, you know, big brotherism and, and totalitarian type of behaviors. Cause most bureaucrats get, pretty bored and when they get bored they get very petty they have to entertain themselves or whatever it may be or they have a boss or they don't care but they have a boss who really really cares about the power of the federal government or the state government they enforce the hell out of it right Mm -hmm. so you've got that crunch coming and then you've got the natural supply and demand factors of reduced labor pool aging workforce medical bills getting higher and then you have this issue where a lot of there used to be a time where driver waiting areas and a lot of places were fairly nice you know they they had a you know, I had a cooler there for you. You get a free pop of water or whatever and some snacks. Uh, the bathrooms were pretty well kept. Coffee used to I always even, be free. Yeah. I, mean, I used it, to it, never pay coffee for was coffee. Free. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 I think it was in 2013, 2014, whenever I started noticing I was getting charged for coffee. I was like, damn, this is okay. Started out at, yeah, it started out at a quarter and now it's like a buck because they're using Keurig and stuff, right? Oh, so, no, it's more than that. It's like, I mean, what? Flying J, it's like, two dollars and 30 cents for a 20 ounce You're cup right. yeah yeah that's ridiculous man it's uh although you know to my to my great shame i'm not a big fan of truck stop coffee most of them have pretty garbage beans but i'll tell you this man i still whenever i whenever i go to a pilot or a flying j i freaking love those hot dogs with the jalapenos and the, that garbage <laughs> my sauce. wife does too <laughs> oh dude I, I had no shame in my game i'll grab two of those things throw the chili and jalapenos yeah. and cheese on top it's awesome well, but, well now they have those now they have the uh now they have the automatic makers that make it as you as you want it so you, yes it's those, those so do the, taste better yeah it, it, so it's at least fresh you know it's freshly ground and you know made right there it, it's like, fresh okay. brown piss water as opposed to six hour yeah exactly yeah oh there's nothing worse than, than asking hey is this coffee fresh and they're like yeah and you get out into your truck and it tastes like it's three days old you know it's just bitter you're just like oh god i'm just gonna choke this down so i can get on my way <laughs> just just i'm just, I'm just gonna enjoy it and, and by the way man like the crispy cream cabinets 
uh, at, at the truck stops will be sold out by 9 a.m. But by God, that fresh fruit and those boiled eggs and the veggie cups and stuff, man, that stuff's going to be there for three days if they don't cycle it. <laughs> well, and I have this, I have this crazy, uh, I have this crazy routine with my dog because he's a spoiled little shit. He, he figured out he wasn't going to get my attention. So now he's laying on my foot. Um, so I'm, my foot's going to be asleep by the time we're done here. Um, this big dog be laying on your foot, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's got his head like rested on my fucking foot. Uh, but so every morning, if I go, if I go in and get my coffee, I'll come back with a cup of coffee and an orange juice, and I don't mm -hmm. have him a biscuit. Oh man, oh, that's it, man. That's it. He's got to get his sausage biscuit every morning. That's so, that's problematic, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So does he have a preference? Is it, is it like, you know, it, it's only Hardee's or only McDonald's or is it just like, he just wants me to bring him something too. And I, you know, it's funny because when we're at home, I'll go to the grocery store and I'll come back from the grocery store and uh, I'll have a plastic bag in my hand. He automatically thinks it's food. He's like, what's in there for me? Like, did you give me a burger? Did you get me a biscuit? What'd you get me? You know, it's a I mean, brown bag and there better oh, yeah. be food. Oh man, if I if I if I stop, like usually my wife makes me enough food for the road, but if I run mm -hmm. out of food or whatever and I and I stop and get me, you know, and I said burger and he looked up like what? Um <laughs> fucking pig. Um if I stop and I get me if I get me a, a hamburger or something, I better come back with a burger for him too. Or I'm not yeah. eating my hamburger, he's eating it. I mean, he's just a big spoiled son of a bitch. This yeah, is my like, life. He, he, he's, he's a kid, man. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he's a child. <laughs> the yep. um, the 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 and what what's hurting, what's hurting rail as an industry is very different. I mean, and trucking is consolidated an enormous amount, but there's still something like fifty thousand different scat codes out there of trucking companies, right? So it's not whether it's one truck. Um, whether it is a not for hire that still has to have a scat code for whatever reason. Um, but there's like 50,000 of them still. Like if you go into like the UMCSA portal and look up safety records or whatever it may be. Right. Um, but what, what you, that's, that's, there's still some available differentiation and supply in the market. You have carriers that only do reefer. You have carriers that so, settle down guys. It's, it's not that kind of reefer. Um, <laughs> So I know someone listening to this is like, wait, there's, there's 53 foot trucks just packed full of weed. It's like, no, only, <laughs> only coming from Mexico and it's hidden in the bottom of pallets right. uh, or in the tires of the truck. Yeah. But so I'm um, giving away smuggling tips now to people. You're welcome. Done some of that. I'll tell you a story Teaching people a like how to, how to stop that, you know, but um, you know, there's not a lot of smuggling tricks I haven't heard of over the years, but so there's, you guys are in this situation as, as drivers where the squeeze is on the man, right? Not necessarily the machine, not even necessarily the corporate entity that you guys drive for. If it's, if you're a fleet driver, uh, it, it's worse if you're an owner operator. I don't think it's ever been worse to be an owner operator than right now, but um, it used to be an, being an owner operator freedom. Now it just means nothing but headaches and, and way too short to pay because the owner operators are getting squeezed even harder than the fleet guys by things like cost of insurance or reduced hours. Uh, you know, the, the compensation, the extra compensation per load is not enough to make up the difference. And now you've got $3 plus road diesel in most places in the U S so it's all bad. 
for them. There's not a lot good unless they find some niche that's very lucrative. They get into a really good lane that they can just run consistently, you know, for, for high paying freight. Those guys have it good and they've got a lot of freedom, but a lot of guys don't, you know, they just kind of take what they can get. Most of these um, guys, uh, at least in the Houston area, which is uh, where I was for most of my career, um, mm-hmm. they're still they're still making almost exactly the same thing they were making 18 years ago when I started driving. Yep. You know, per mile. Um, you you look and all the there's I don't know if you're familiar with the Houston area, but Barry, my mom was there for a decade. Well, you know, McCarty. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wallaceville Road, McCarty. Yep. That's where all the trucking companies yep. are. And still you drive by there. Every single one of them still say a dollar a mile. And it's yep. like, it's been a dollar a mile forever, man. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, and Houston benefited for a long time from really robust energy markets being kind of the major import export hub for, for American energy and chemical products. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff paid super well, right? Right. Uh, you know, Halliburton, Halliburton used to pay like extremely well for their loads. That's uh, where I got my license. Was it Halliburton? Yep. Yeah. You know, they, they used to pay extremely well. They, they always paid five or 10% over the market for, for most of their loads because they had to move. It was all government contract. They didn't give a crap. Right. Well, I was driving so, a pump truck. I was driving a pump yeah. truck. I was, I was, I was making eight, eight fifty an hour, but I was getting paid mm-hmm. for 150 hours a week. That's awesome. Yeah. But I was sleeping I mean, on a I was sleeping on a piece of plywood in a day cab. Less awesome. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. Awesome. It was horrible. God, I day, hated that. Day cabs, job. day cabs are the worst. But they they put they put you in day cabs on the theory that it's easier to maneuver the truck through tight corridors and or yeah. on you know on the theory that that day cabs you know reduce weight, which means you can increase the amount of you know freight in the trailer. But um, but but even even then, I'm sure most drivers would just rather be like, you know what, just give me a freaking sleeper and shut up about it. Right. You know? Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, extra room would be nice, not having a glass window two inches behind your head. Yeah, we'll we'll, um, fi- we'll figure we'll figure it out, man. <laughs> we'll I, I remember the, the I remember the first job I ever went on. Me, I had to back up three miles around these curves and 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 stay on uh, two by twelve pieces of wood because you know it gets so muddy on those on the in the oil that was um, gonna say that had to be that had to be out in an oil patch somewhere yeah yeah that's what yeah. i did we were we were pumping we were we were pumping cement into uh finished wells mm-hmm. and so yeah that's what i was yeah, doing you're capping, was you're, you're capping the, you're capping the wells off and stuff yep. yeah yeah and oh it's, it uh, sucked man it was horrible. i'm sure we wish we hadn't capped them all now <laughs> but <laughs> the uh so, and it's, it's even as bad as it is for a lot of the guys that are doing what you're doing in Louisiana or in Illinois or, you know, Nebraska or whatever it may be, the drage guys out at the, out at the ports right now have it probably as bad as anybody in the domestic transportation industry um, because the congestion is so bad. If you're, Again, in the spirit of being on, on a Libertarian Institute podcast here, you know, like I'm going to get on my high horse about regulatory regimes in California. So when the Clean Air Act was introduced, um, any any truck that was manufactured, you know, before 1987, I think you couldn't even drive anymore. Literally just throw it out. Got it. You have to cycle your fleet. And then you had so many years as a carrier to become, you know, what, you know, what they called, uh, you know, clean trucks or, you know, clean air approved. And that program has increased costs to carriers significantly 
because those trucks to have the reduced emissions are have have more complex emission systems on them. Um, they have uh, the the computers on them are programmed differently in terms of how they consume fuel and emit uh, you know emit the product. And then at some point, all pretty much all of the all of the manufacturers were like, you know, this clean idle thing is such a problem. We're just going to make all the trucks to that standard, so we can at least standardize it, right? Because it was it, it, it was it was so much more expensive to make a clean idle truck in the limited quantities California required. So not only you had that, but then you had hours of service rules hit them in California before they hit most people because for the local routes. But then you've got the problem of these drivers now are sitting at the ports for. 12 hours they run some of these guys will turn their truck on and not get a single load in a day because they're stuck in line at the freaking port waiting for a container for pick a big importer right so they're touching they're they're maybe getting three or four round trips in a week and they're dealing with frustration there and and the port doesn't want to talk about this but screw the port i don't care i'll talk about it there's things like fist fights at the ports going on between drivers like this guy cut in line because if a guy if a guy comes into one of the lanes and manages to nose in with his bobtail ahead of you with a, like you know maybe a loaded export or, or you're returning an empty or whatever it may be and he noses in in front of three trucks that could be a difference between you getting a container today and not getting a container or you not right. getting a chassis right so i mean this this type of stuff is bad and it's it's boiling over. These drivers are just done. You know, the Teamsters out there are striking at two or three terminals that that where the where the container pools are operated by Universal Logistics Holdings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the longshoremen are now joining them every now and again, just just to remind people that their labor negotiations are coming up here and here at the ports. So it's just the congestion is bad, and it has this just enormous negative downstream effect on everything behind it. The warehousemen are turning fewer loads. More containers are sitting in drop lots for when they're empty. The warehouse doors are all full. So we as the U.S., and this is something I warned about. I think you read one of those threads where I warned about this at the beginning of COVID. I said, China is going to have a V-shaped recovery. They are built, built. And their major 10 port zones, their mega region port zones, which would be like the Nanjing, Shanghai, Ningbo complex, Qingdao, Tianjin, Xingang, Dalian, you know, Xiamen, Yantian, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, like these are mega regions that are built for high speed export of product. The high, you know, they get congested, they deal with that. It it gets pretty bad there, but they've got just tons of trucks. The the trackers are cheap. They've got shitloads of chassis because they make so many there in China. And then they're, they're literally just getting the containers. Just, you know, they got five dudes stuffing stuff with forklifts or hand bobbing containers, just packing boxes into these trailers and they're getting them back to the port and, and they, they turn exports far quicker than in the U S we can receive an import. Mm-hmm. And I warned about this over a year ago. I said, here's the thing. The Chinese factories are going to co- recover from COVID. The Chinese government is dependent on everybody buying their stuff. They're going to make these factories, even if it's not safe for the workers, it's not about this is a pandemic to China. It was about get the factories back work and get everybody right. back, you know, get the machines turned on and get them going because we need the dollars flowing in. So I knew China was going to have this V-shaped recovery, just like a rocket to the moon. And it started in April. Right. And I said, the congestion is going to start showing up in our ports by July. And it did it actually started showing up in June. I was, I was wrong. Yeah. And people were like, well, you know, this will just, you know, it'll slow down. And I'm like, it's not going to slow down. When the first round of stimulus went out, I'm like, people are going to be buying PlayStations and Xboxes and shit. They're not going to be putting that money into restaurants because all the restaurants are closed. Well, and there was a, I remember hearing people talk about like, what was it? The place, I, I don't, 
play video games, but was it PlayStation five or whatever it is nowadays having like a six month waiting, you know, list on it. Yeah. You know, I said something about that. I'll wait wait six months to get, you know, on a list to get a new tattoo. I don't know about a PlayStation, but you know, well, the tattoo is going to last a lot longer. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I I did want to ask you about this though, because Mm -hmm. I was, I was reading, like I'm reading what you're talking about with China and, Mm -hmm. and, and how they're shipping in. They're creating this bottleneck at our mm-hmm. ports. Are they overloading their ships, though? But and, and I, I have an anecdotal situation here, and I was just curious. Sure. My my dad works for a lumber company. All right, mm-hmm. they get their molding from China. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were they they pl- placed an order of molding when they were you know when they started getting low about average, and it was on a it was on a ship. It was being shipped over. The ship hit a storm, and they started pushing containers over the edge of the ship. It was and the ONE Apis. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. I had containers on that ship too. Because <laughs> they they ran they ran out of molding because the molding never made it because all the like all of their molding were on the containers that were pushed over. <laughs> so yeah, so the we've had actually six incidents now. That were pretty major. The ONE Aethis is like the famous one because it's this giant pink ship. It's huge. It's four hundred, almost four hundred meters long. It's like three hundred and seventy-eight meters long or whatever. Okay. And it's sixty meters wide. It's massive. And people who saw the Ever Given incident in the Suez were like, "Holy shit! I had no idea ships were this big." I did. Want, I want to ask you about that too. Yeah, that, it, it's God, I had cargo on that ship too. But the <laughs> the ONE Aethis, I think it's my fault. No, the ONE Apis is, is is a massive ship. It's a fourteen thousand TEU vessel, so it's a, it, it's smaller by percentage of containers carried by about twenty five percent or twenty percent than the Ever Given is, which the Ever Given is the second largest of its class of ship. The only one bigger is Hyundai's. Uh, I forget what class it's called, but Hyundai has twenty uh, has several twenty four thousand TEU vessels. Uh, I think it's the Al just uh, Al class, uh, which is named after one of the ports in Spain, but. Um, so anyway, those are 24,000 TEU. Then you have the Ever Given, which is 20 to 21,000 TEU. Then you have the ONE Apis, which is the next next largest class at 14 to 18,000 TEU in that class. And TEU is 20-foot equivalent or 20-foot long ocean containers. And that's the standard for the industry uh, that we measure ship capacity by. So you've got two things happening, actually, a lot of things happening here. First thing that's happening is, is the Chinese ports, the longshoremen there, the warehousemen, everybody involved with the maritime supply chain in China is freaking overworked. Um, there's a lot of people in China, there's a billion and a half people there, but not all of them are working at the port, right? They're, they're limited by, you know, manpower constraints, same as we are. And they're facing just, I mean, from a, from a human perspective, I, I agree for them the same way I do our, our, our longshoremen and our truckers and stuff, because they never, never, ever has either end of the supply chain of this international trans-Pacific supply chain between China and the U S been, have the workers been asked to carry so much burden and hours and, and, and strain on themselves physically and emotionally. So what you've got is <clears throat> as COVID has set in as the op tempo or the pace of operations for these, for these ocean carriers, these guys are being pushed, just get the shit on the ship, get them, you know, get them sealed down, or, you know, get them locked down and into their, into their, you know, into their racks on the ship and then get the ship moving. And the, the, the corners are being cut, right. And loading 
and stowing the, what we call stowing or stowing the vessels. Corners are being cut, obviously, right? Corners are being cut in terms of maintenance. Uh, the crews, in a lot of cases, I, I've, I've tweeted a lot about the crewing crisis in the industry. In a lot of cases, these crews were on the ships for six, seven, eight months at a time before they got cycled off. Because if they cycled off in China, in the Philippines, in the U.S., they automatically went to a 14-day quarantine because of COVID. And by that time, they would have already recruited the ship. Ship would have been on its way. And then they got to wait to get onto another ship. So if nobody's leaving the ships, these guys can't make money, right? They get off the ship, they're stuck. They're, they're stuck on land and they can't do what they do, which is sail professionally until another slot opens up. And then their seniority allows them to step into that slot. So these guys just weren't leaving the ships. So the, the guys on the ship are fatigued. The pilots are fatigued, the ones that actually board the ships or the tugs that, that you know, help park the ships when they get close to shore and, and the terminals and the harbors. Everybody involved is stressed. Everybody involved is overworked. They're fried at the end of their rope mentally, right, and physically. So you've got that dynamic going. Corners are inevitably cut because humans are humans. The next issue that you have is the, uh, the issue of fuel. Um, so a lot of people don't understand, but here in the middle of last year, uh, the, the, the requirement fully went into effect for what's called the IMO 2020 rule, uh, which requires ultra low sulfur emissions and consumption and fuel aboard these ships, what we call bunkers or bunker fuel, um, which is just an antiquated term for, for heavy fuel oil that's used in these ships. The engines on these ships were built to a certain specification and grade of fuel. That's viscosity. That's its, um, yeah, I forget what the term is, but basically like its combustion point at which it maximizes its combustion in the engines of these ships. And they're built to burn and consume that fuel in a certain way. The fuel seal, the, the seals, the pumps, the gaskets, all of it, right, is very tightly regulated and specified according to certain grades of this heavy marine fuel. So with IMO 2020, there, there with very few exceptions is not a natural or single step process to turn light, sweet, crude, or whatever it may be. I can't even reference sweet, crude, sour, crude, whatever it may be, but very few places in the world naturally produce fuel or, or crude petroleum or crude oil out of the ground. They can be refined pretty easily into something compliant with IMO 2020. Um, so what happens is we get these Franken fuels. They start blending in all of this crazy stuff into it to get the fuel to keep the BTUs and the combustion at a certain level. But just like for years and years, we couldn't figure out why seals were rotting and failing in cars after the introduction of 10 to 15% ethanol content in our fuel, right? So the engines and the gaskets and everything were built around using fuel. But once you introduced alcohol into the process, the fuels were rotting and drying out or the gaskets and seals. We're drying out a lot quicker. It was happening in trucks too. So you've got you've got this going now. So these these engines were not built to consume this. I mean, just think about the human body, right? If I drink bleach every day, I'm going to die eventually. I may not die right away. I drink a little bit of bleach. 5% of bleach in every cup of water I drink, though, will eventually rot my insides and kill me. And that's what's happening to these ships is they're being fed fuel that's literally killing the engines and fuel systems. And they're dying at the most inopportune times. They're dying in the middle of in the middle of the ocean, right? So in the case of the ONE Apis, right, you had this huge storm. They couldn't navigate out of it because their fuel systems and their engines weren't working correctly. A crew can only do so much. Now they're getting hit with these crazy storms. It's being blamed on climate change or whatever. I don't really give a shit. These ships were built to these ships were built to take a lot more punishment than that and safely operate and transit these waters. 
but they're being hit with these storms. The propulsion systems aren't working correctly. And all of a sudden now the ships are now being subjected to forces they weren't designed for way above their, their, their load design. And the containers are being pitched overboard just by the natural state of things. Right. So we've had that happen now. O&E Apis being the famous one, because it's the big pink ship with containers in the water around it. Um, but we've now had it happen with three Maersk vessels the Essen being another one that was a pretty big disaster. Uh, the Eindhoven was another one that just recently happened. And there was a third somewhere, something else in the E-class of vessels. Evergreen has had actually had an incident prior to the Ever Given on the Ever Libra, which had to dock it at, uh, in Taiwan for, for two weeks to have the cargo reworked. They ran into issues. So now you have this where the worst time of year for storms in, this, in the North Pacific crossing, which is the winter, the fuel systems are starting to fail. The propulsion systems are starting to fail because of this cheap Franken fuel <clears throat> that they're putting in the ships that have all the crap. I mean, they're putting in things like, <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit that I'm one of the guys who sold this stuff. So I sold and shipped many flexi tanks, which are the, the, 20, the bladders that go in a 20 foot container that turn into a bulk liquid carrier. Many flexi tanks of rendered animal fat from a meat processing facility where they process things like bacon that animal fat gets blended down, put in containers. We were shipping it overseas to Europe and it was going straight into the heavy marine oil, fuel oil blends to get, these, to get these vessels compliant. And there's a whole regulatory regime in Europe that nobody talks about that gives them credits, emissions credits for reducing their emissions using this garbage stuff that they're adding to their fuel and it's killing the ships. So it's, 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 we've got perverse incentives in addition to bad timing, in addition to pandemic related issues, in addition to consumption, the, the demand and consumption in the U.S. switched, shifted, right? When we shut down baseball games and golf courses and sporting events for our kids and restaurants and all of that money that we were spending there, right? That was circulating the economy and the service industry switched to physical, <coughs> excuse me. Yellow choked up talking about it. Switched over to physical products that by and large we had to import. That's furnitures and TVs and electronics and home goods, right? I don't like the way my kitchen looks. I'm going to redo it. We're going to buy all new plates. Those plates aren't made in the US. Those plates are made in Thailand right. or China, right? That all has to be imported. So when consumer demand shifted from services and experiences to physical goods that mostly had to be imported, absolute perfect storm for these unbelievable maritime and economic disasters that we're seeing. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until the American economy collapses and we quit buying so much crap from overseas. So do you think, um, one of, one of the things my dad has told me is great, great example is OSB plywood. All right. Prior to COVID OSB, a sheet of OSB was seven and a half, eight dollars a sheet. Right now, if you go to Home Depot, you buy a sheet of OSB plywood, you're looking at 45 bucks. Yep. Now, is that is that because of the the higher demand? Is inflation? Is it the 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 supply chain? Is it a combination of all three? Like, what's happening with with stuff like yeah, it's a with the building it's building materials in general? I know are way up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything from aluminum to 
fasteners. Um, so one of my uh, one of my customers I work with uh, imports fasteners from Taiwan and China, and fasteners is just a fancy term for nuts and bolts. Um, they import lots of it. They import lots of it. So these fasteners at one point were commercial invoice value. I think on these is up anywhere from thirty to forty percent from the factory side, which means they're being sold for basically double or more what they were selling for a year ago at Home right. Depot or Lowe's or wherever. And that's just the fasteners, but the aluminum sheets of aluminum for roofs uh, or for sidewalls on Morton buildings and things like that. Um, I don't know if Morton buildings is a term used in the South, but here in the, every machine shed is nicknamed a Morton building. It's like facial tissue being called. You're talking, uh, you're talking like corrugated iron and shit like that. Yeah. Cor- like, uh, uh, like corrugated farm, like machine sheds. You'd see at farms that have like right. an office on them and stuff. We call them Morton buildings because oh, okay. Morton and Morton industries out of Morton, Illinois is like kind of the design, you know, kind of one of the early, you know, um, giants of that industry. But so everything that goes into that, right. Uh, The lumber, the plywood, uh, the the aluminum, the fasteners, all that stuff that you need to actually make a building. A lot of that's imported for the most part, it is imported. Mm -hmm. And so not only is it, is it more expensive to get it over here now it's delayed. So if you want to, it used to be, if you wanted to build 10 houses, you could find building materials for 10 houses in a given neighborhood. Well, if you want to build 10 houses now, there's only enough available material because most of us stuck in Los Angeles at the port. Uh, there's only enough available building materials for two. So now you have a supply and demand, which you know fundamental market forces come into play at that point. Um, this contractor needs to get the house built. He's on contract to build so many houses. He's going to pay whatever it takes and just pass the cost of materials along to the, to the builder, right? Or to the, uh, to the buyer of the home. Right. So you do have a supply and demand happening uh, locally, right? At the final mile where, where the cost is going up. Uh, you can't, you can't arbitrage anymore, right? Because you can't replace, if you need a certain kind of heat treated lumber to build the frame of a house, you got to have that freaking lumber and it's got to be that great. It's got to be unwarped. It's got to be good quality. It's got to be heat treated, all those things. So we have that going on. You also have uh, inflation across the board. Your, your dollar doesn't maybe stretch as far anymore as it used to just because of you know currency devaluation yeah i mean they printed uh, i think it's something like 40 percent of the money in circulation right now was printed last year so mm-hmm. i mean that's a huge deal even yeah, if I mean, we're not just, feeling print. even if you, we're you not can't. feeling it the full effect of it, it it's gonna no. happen we, we're gonna no, there, there's i mean we're, we're in like our fourth or fifth round of quantitative easing at this point yeah. Um, you know, the, and it's, it's, yeah, we're cycling dollars and the, and the velocity and all the metrics. I mean, the fed, but the fed's lying their asses off, but that's what the fed does. Right. They've done that right. since the, the creature of Jekyll Island was birthed. Right. Yep. So we, we, we deal with that issue where we've got negative externalities happening on the supply chain side at origin. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's the, the, you know, the, the, the lumber and wood materials processing facilities are, already overworked. The machines are starting to break down. The people overseas are burning out, whether you're getting your stuff out of Indonesia or Vietnam, Malaysia, China, wherever. Um, then it's harder and more expensive and more delays to get it out of that country to the U.S. Once it's in the U.S., it's even more delays to get it to the final mile. And the appetite, this, thanks to the stimulus, people want to buy their houses now or they want to put additions to their houses. I want to put a giant four-season room in the back of my house, right? 500 square feet. Where am I going to get the materials to do that? Well, it doesn't matter because I just got a $5,000 stimulus from my family that I can put into a larger down payment to get that done instead of my neighbor, maybe who doesn't have the money to do the same thing. He had to finance his, his four season room. I right. can get cash for mine. So 
you know, there's three houses, uh, four houses across the street from me being built on empty lots. The developer is now building these houses up. And I was talking to one of the workers and, and I noticed that the construction had completely stalled uh, on one of the homes. And they said, well, this had a custom spec room on it, required some different materials. And we're three weeks out from getting those materials. We literally can't keep building this house. So we're just going to go continue building the other stuff that's, you know, basically to, to plan and prefab materials. Right. It's, it's, uh, Again, the, the port congestion is going to continue to be a durable issue. Uh, it's not going to unwind. It, it's not and just to, until people quit buying so much furniture and tires from their cars and PlayStations and TVs. Um, once that starts to slow down, the congestion will begin to unwind a little bit. Um, but now we're in a situation, too, where it's going to continue to be more expensive to move these materials. You know, two years ago, three years ago, it was like 750 bucks to move a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles. Like that was Walmart's contract rate like three years ago. It was like 700 bucks to move a 40 foot container from Shanghai to LA. Hmm. That same container today, if you can even get on the ship, you got to pay the Hyundai Supreme rate or the MSC diamond tier uh, or whatever it may be. If you're doing those things these days, um, it's, if you want to get on the ship right now, six grand to get that container from Shanghai to, to LA. Uh, so when you're talking about relatively thin margins on these building materials anyway, now you're talking these razor thin margins are about to explode uh, simply because the cost of freight's more. So again, uh, I wish I had really good news for people, but I don't see this improving in the next 12 to 24 months at least. And that's if, if the longshoremen negotiations don't break down and there's a strike in the middle of next year when the contract expires in July. You're, that's 2022. It's 2022. That's okay. <clears throat> the contract expires 14 months from now. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> what I need. Another fucking black pill. Dude, I'm sure. I'm, dude, I'm sure. You, I'm turning into fucking Doctor Doom right now, man. Like nobody wants to hear this. They heard. They heard me on my soapbox for 10 minutes, and were like, "Oh my god, we're done. This guy is." Yeah, well, and then if they listen to the podcast I recorded yesterday, uh, with. Uh, <laughs> on with Freeman beyond the wall they're going to be like oh we're <laughs> we're moving to saipan fuck all this bullshit <laughs> should, we, should, should we talk about how the withdrawal from afghanistan is going to let the chinese mercenaries come in and take over all the rare earth mines in afghanistan <laughs> uh, ah. I, I, you know, horribly depressing okay well here's something i was looking at and maybe maybe you have a different perspective on this than mm -hmm. i do maybe i think behind the scenes there's a cartelization between China, China's industry and America's industry. All right. And the reason I say that is because I talked to my wife being from South Africa mm -hmm. about um, construction in South Africa. And she mm -hmm. said about 85 to 90 percent of the infrastructure in South Africa is constructed by China. Mm -hmm. Right. Very much so. When her brother-in-law as an engineer wanted to get a job in oil and gas, mm -hmm. it was a Western company. It was, he ended up going to New Zealand, but he had his choice between America, New Zealand, Britain. Like it was, it, there was no Eastern countries. I think there's a deal behind the scenes that China handles certain things. America handles certain things. And I think it's just because of the size of the economies that if they didn't work this deal out, it would be full fledged war. Yeah, it's um, 
It would be right. Uh, one of the things I've said on uh, probably every podcast I've ever done is what we what what countries or nations can't trade for, they'll go to war for. Yeah. Um, if we can't trade for it, we'll fight was for it. it. And was it Milton Friedman that said when uh, goods aren't crossing borders, armies will? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And what's funny is, is I, you know, that's that's a formulation of of the theory that I encountered after you know I'd sort of already arrived at that on my own really early in my career, my dad asked me, and this is where I came up with it. Friedman wasn't something I got into until maybe like 10 years ago, but um, and certainly grateful for him um, and, and Ayn Rand and all the others, right? So um, in a lot of ways, very much have influenced my thinking, even even on things where maybe I disagreed to some extent. But um, certainly, you know, I remember my dad asking me, he's like, you know, I was kind of early in my career and I was making that transition at the time. I didn't know that's what was going to happen. I was making that transition at the time for being a grain merchandiser to a grain logistics guy. And my dad asked me, he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like I said, I like working with the trucks. I like, you know, driving the, the switch engine for the rail. I said, I like working out in the grain elevator. I like doing the export of, of this stuff because we were exporting some stuff to Mexico at the time out of that elevator. And I said, I really like that. I, I, I care about that. I said, I don't give a crap about what the markets are doing. You know, like I said, it's not like trading places, man. There's no Jamie Lee Curtis waiting for me on the other side of this. It's, <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, I, so I want to do something that's cool. And, and my dad said, well, if you don't want to be the guy that trades either end of the deal, uh, then be the guy that moves it because you'll always have a job. And pretty quickly from that discussion, I remember that discussion. It was at the very end of 2006 and pretty quickly, you know, and of course that discussion, I said something and, and it's a thing that I can, it's a heuristic that I continue to use today. There are a very few final dollar, last dollar commodities or goods. And the, the, the formulation I came up with <clears throat> and later encountered Friedman and all of that, you know, saying again, when goods don't cross border armies, well, the, if, if a country has $1 left to spend, it's only got one, one piece of currency left, right? It's going to spend it on either food or water or energy. Maybe you can make an argument for military material or, or medical supply chain stuff like pharmacy, basic pharmaceuticals. But by and large, a country will let people die from medical conditions before they let them starve to death or run out of water or not have gas for their cars or, or power for their homes. Because those are the things that people will absolutely overthrow a government for. Right. It's why food security, food security continues to be China's biggest Achilles heel. They are, they are at any given time, just a few weeks of, of food insecurity away from, from a full on 1943 or whenever the revolution started, you know, for yeah. the, the Kuomintang and, and, the, and the communists. So if, if a country has $1 left to spend to secure the power of the existing government, it's going to be one of those three things, food, water, or energy. And I maintain that that rule is, is pretty ironclad. Um, the breakdown of civilization uh, will 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 start over one of those three things most likely, uh, or because somebody encroached into the regulatory domain of someone else for those things. China jealously guards its waters and and does everything it can to expand it. South China Sea being a great example, East China Sea too, but in the South China Sea in particular, there's a ton of oil and a ton of natural gas locked in the bedrock underneath the South China Sea. I mean, lots of it. Something I forget the number, but something like. 15 to 20% of all known reserves of natural gas in the world that are untapped are sitting at the bottom of the South China Sea right now. Then you talk about all the fishing that they do. China's a hungry country and they eat a ton of fish. 
It's been really bad for them in the last three years because of African swine fever wiping out half their hog herds. So now they got to have fish, right? So that's why the fishing vessels are doing crazy stuff. So is China bullying their neighbors in the South China Sea for, for no reason? No, they're not. It's a pure play maneuver to control the flow of goods through China's backyard to corner the market on the fisheries and have access to that protein and to do what they need to do to secure all of the oil and the natural gas that's underground in the South China Sea so they can exploit it right. because they're trying to reduce their dependencies on Iran or Saudi Arabia or Iraq for crude oil. They're trying to reduce their dependencies on Qatar for natural gas, right? So it, it's right now it's a case of they don't have access to those materials. They don't want to depend on Russia or whomever, right? They, they want to be self-sufficient. They want to dominate the world. They think that they should be in charge of the world, the, the global hegemon, the same way the U.S. has been for the last 50 years. So functionally right now, it's not so much a cartel or a gentleman's agreement as just they haven't found a way to get access to the scale of raw material that they need to become independent on the energy side. So what they do is they find other ways to co-opt countries to make the supplies of goods in those countries available to China first and at the best price. So that's the trade impact, right? They manipulate regulatory levers and trade tools and then use the threat of insurgencies or fourth generation warfare type concepts or cyber attacks or currency manipulation or whatever is available to them to secure supplies. Right. That's what they're doing with Australia right now. You know, they're playing the heavy on Australia because they're so dependent on Australia. Very few countries. I think Australia is the only, what you may call it, like a first world country, whatever, but Australia, I think, is the only country right now that has a trade surplus with China that trades with China above a certain scale of billions of dollars. China is more dependent on Australia than Australia is on China. Same for Canada. Right. China is more dependent on Canada than Canada is on China. So you've got these tools, things like iron ore and timber and gold and right all these resources. People just don't want to play the game with China because they're scared of what China will do. And that's where the threat of force comes in where trade breaks down, where China's wolf warrior diplomacy tactics fail down, where the carrot and the stick have both failed. <clears throat> then they'll escal escalate the threats of violence, right. um, which is what they're doing now with Australia. So it's a, the, 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 the China issue is one that impacts the entire world. And all the world really needs to do is understand specifically how and why China manipulates supply chains, manipulates the regulatory regimes of the UN and other governing bodies, the World Trade Organization for its own benefit. If all the nations just came together, even all the Anglosphere and Quad nations and the Latin American nations, which isn't that many when you add it all up, right? So the former UK territories, including the UK and then Canada and the United States and all that, the Quad, which is India, Japan, Australia, and the US, and the Latin American countries that China has, has created dependencies on China too, which is Chile, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, things like that. If they just banded together and said, you know what, China, go to hell. Go to hell in a handbasket. We're not selling you our crap anymore. We're not buying from you anymore. China collapses in a month. Completely collapses. It, it, it dissolves in the fires of revolution. Yeah. But the vested interests in each of these Western countries or co-opted countries won't do it because they're corrupted. They're corrupted by the dollar. They're not corrupted by anything other than power and money. They don't give a shit about economists, but they don't give a shit about democracy or for, you know, being a republic either. Mm -hmm. They just care about the fact that they're in the position they're in because they've exploited power and wealth for their own purposes. And they want to keep it that way. Right. Yeah. No, that's makes a lot of sense to me. So 
last thing. Probably gonna get shot for saying this stuff, but whatever. Uh, I hope not. I say I say a lot worse. Yeah, so uh, I, I apologize if you do, because I yeah, usually no I, I usually uh say a lot worse. So um, last a lot thing, of body I, armor and ammo and guns sit within arms. <laughs> <region, so> okay. <laughs> I want to talk about the Suez Canal and why women shouldn't be allowed to drive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't laugh at that. That was a sound effect you got in and posted. Um, <laughs> no, uh, oh God, that, I think that was the very first meme I saw. The second one I saw was an Impractical Jokers one of being like, "Now, Joe, turn the ship hard to the right," and then it shows, <laughs> and then it shows, you know, the you know, the Ever Given across the Suez, and then it shows the Impractical Jokers laughing about it. But, but that, um, that was a that was actually like a really really serious situation that we were dealing with there because extremely from what I read. And I didn't read a lot on it, but mm -hmm. what I did read, it, something like 13% of the daily goods being shipped in the world go through that canal. Is, on is average, that, it's about 10. On average, it's about 10%. About 10%. <laughs> okay. On average, okay. it's about 10%. So, uh, but that's a year. lot of, that's a lot of stuff. You know, yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. And so it's that. Trillions up, of dollars in trade a year exactly. go, through that, go through that canal. And how much of that was, you know, goods that could go bad, you know, and, a lot of it. Yeah. So, yep. so that, that costs a lot of people, a lot of money. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, the bill right now that's being asked for is a billion dollars, <laughs> roughly a billion dollars by the Suez Canal Authority and the government of Egypt. They've impounded the ship. They've seized the ship. There's 8,000 or 9,000 containers on that ship that are not going anywhere and have not gone anywhere. They have not left the great, you know, the, the great bitter lake. I don't know. Anyway, it was one of the two bitter lakes, right. Which is in the middle of the canals. Right. But the ship has been at anchor. They, they conducted an inspection on it. They determined that it's still seaworthy and, and that there's no risk of leaks or whatever it may be, which is a, that in itself is a freaking miracle. Uh, that ship grounded out extremely hard. Um, they're lucky to interruption the hole and have a massive fuel leak in the, uh, in, in, the in the canal. But, um, so the ship has been impounded currently. It's under armed guard by the, by the Egyptian government, the Suez Canal Authority. By the way, the Suez Canal Authority has their own military force. People don't realize that, but they're, and they're like very serious customers. Um, you know, they're drawn out of Egyptian special forces type stuff. So, yeah. um, but they don't screw around because that's the, I mean, that is the breadbasket of Egypt. The, 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 the far and away, the number one revenue source for Egypt is that canal, either directly or indirectly, right? Because the tolls then get charged to the ships. Um, and then all the downstream commerce that it attracts to the uh, free trade zones and the warehouse parks and the industrial zones around the canal. So when that happened, when that happened, immediately behind that were like 40 ships that were waiting to transit behind and they transit in convoys and the ever given was in the middle of the convoy. So you had all these ships, several of them that had to literally be towed backwards out of that part of the channel. Right to make room right. for the tugs to get in, <clears throat> and then they didn't have the tug capacity to drag this thing off because when it embedded it, embedded itself into thirty meters of mud. People don't realize those ships draft right. way deep in the water, and I think the draft on the Ever Given is when it's fully laden is like fourteen meters or fourteen and a half meters, so it's almost fifty feet. And it and then when it went hard into the 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 eastern embankment there. Um, it, it's not like it's a U-shaped channel, like a like like a pool, like you would imagine a pool would be, right? Right. Uh, it's 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 basically sloped like this, and it's sloped at a grade where uh, 
you have a ship where the channel, the deep part of the channel where the ship should sail is like the middle half to the two thirds, right? So other than that, there's, it's, it's, it's on a grade. So when the ship went in, it didn't just go straight into the shore and then all I had to do was pull down. Uh, it, it was the front hundred feet of the ship or more was buried in, you know, meters of mud, right? which is, and then you have a ship that weighs 200,000 tons once it's laden with all the cargo and containers, right? So that issue, the, we came so close to disaster that if the high, the king tide, right? If the high tide hadn't been extremely strong and extremely high uh, compared to what it could have maybe been, if it had been kind of a weaker king tide, mm-hmm. uh, it would not have provided enough buoyancy for that ship, for the big, for the big um, tugs and the salvage ships and, and the dredgers to be able to get, get the ship out. It would have been stuck there. It would still be stuck there. They'd right. be pulling the cargo off one container at a time, getting it to shore and then trucking it. And then once the ship was light enough, maybe they would have been able to drag it out on one of the high tides. Um, it would have been a huge, huge problem. And we came very, very close to economic meltdown globally over it. Europe is going to be dealing with the, the tail of that event for months to come right. because of the congestion that it caused at the, at the ports. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's, it's I super saw this, problematic. I saw this weird map. Now you're saying these ships are going in fleets. So there's, and she, and, and they were in the middle. In the canal, they run. Yeah. In the canal, they run in convoys. Okay. There'll there'll be multiple ships in a line. Yeah. Did you see that map where it was like showing that the ship had gone all over the damn place prior to this? It looked like it it looked like it drew a giant dick, right? Yes. Yeah. I'll say it. Yeah. It was, it was actually really funny uh, in its own sad way. It looked like a dick going into an ass, but like, (laughs) That wasn't even like I was wondering if that was even real. <laughs> so one of two things happened here. That's actually a very odd sort of holding pattern, but it is a it is particularly the figure eight uh, part of it. You know, I guess what what you would consider like the nuts of the of the uh, the graph there. Yeah. Um, they that that is a fairly typical holding pattern. Um, okay. As weird as it looks when it, when the data is actually graphed out, it does make sense in the context of. Um, a ship waiting for its, for its turn and not wanting to just anchor down uh, because they knew they were about to enter a convoy. Okay. Um, the other thing that could be happening, and, and this is more my theory, uh, if I'm a little more conspiratorial minded when it comes to this whole event, which I'm sure you saw my tweets on, um, you can hack very easily, actually. Uh, you can hack the AIS transponder data. So the AISs are basically the black boxes for the ships that broadcast the ship's uh, position and its name. Um, and its current status. So it's we're underway, we're at anchor, whatever. AIS is very easily hacked. Um, and there's all sorts of games that can be played that way, both black hat and white hat games. Um, but it would have been very easy if someone did cause, and you can hack the systems on these ships too. It's not the first time it's happened. It won't be the last. But the system, the propulsion systems, the navigation systems, the comms on these ships all of them are not hard. They're not secure. They are very hackable. It has happened. <clears throat> it's something that the United States has done, and it's something that's been done to us, uh, to our ships. Um, so my theory is, because we don't know. Nobody's going to admit that they were in a dick-shaped holding pattern, right? Um, they probably don't even remember, right? You could easily manipulate the AIS data. If you are someone who has committed an act against the ship, you could, if you if you really are just being a jerk about the whole thing, 
You could easily manipulate the AIS data as well that was broadcast by the ship through a man-in-the-middle attack and make it look to all of the AIS monitoring websites like Marine Traffic or Vessel Finder or whatever. You can make it look like a dick if you want, just by changing just by changing the GPS coordinates and parameters of when the AIS is broadcasting. Right. You can make it whatever shape. You can draw a kitty cat with it if you wanted to. Yeah. So my, my senses, my senses, it really, it, it's a real pattern. It was random, uh, but very very timely <laughs> and, and poorly randomized. Um, <laughs> but, but it is certainly within the realm of possibility that, that, that the AIS data was manipulated or toyed with to produce that image uh, as, as sort of a middle finger. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard quite a few people say that. So I was just wondering if, if there it's was extremely any... possible and it is more, it is done more frequently than, than people realize. Oh, okay. So would that have had any impact on, the the accident that happened after the fact no no if if it's just just now if it's just in a holding pattern i mean what what has been announced about uh, what what happened the the final diagnosis and again no matter what actually happened on the ship we're going to get one official story because there's billions of dollars at stake here if you cannot prove if you can prove if you can prove negligence operator error maintenance issues uh, cyber attack on the ship. If you can prove any of those conditions, uh, anything other than an act of God, which the, the claim of a sandstorm is an act of God. Um, if, if it's anything else other than an act of God, now all of a sudden everybody involved is not covered under force majeure, which is the French term for act of God and under maritime law. So or force de majeure, right? It's not an act of God. Everybody is now liable for the, in some way, the ship owner, the ship charterer, which is Evergreen, the vessel agency that hires the crew and buys the fuel and provisions the ship, they're now all liable for the billion dollar plus claim being issued. But if they can say, I know we can do about it, man. It was just a rogue windstorm came along. We were just driving along. Maybe ah, maybe we're driving. It's, it's like admitting to the cop that you had one beer instead of 12. Right? Uh, sir, you were driving erratically. Oh, I'm sorry, officer. I, I dropped my cigarette in my lap and it scared me. And I was trying to pat it out. And I, I sir, I see an open beer can in the car. Yeah, but that's the only beer I've had tonight, officer. Like, it's that sort of thing. Like, yeah, they're admitting they were driving a little bit faster. Maybe they weren't paying attention quite what they should have been, but it shouldn't have caused that. Oh, but this huge windstorm came along and blew a 200,000 ton ship sideways at high speed so that it was embedded in both sides of the canal. No matter how preposterous that story may seem to someone, they're going to stick with that story because it's the only thing that keeps them from a billion dollar plus claim having to be paid out and shared amongst all the stakeholders of that vessel. Right. So whatever actually happened, we're never going to get the real story. And, and, you know, people like me who are fairly seasoned experts in this sort of thing, we have our doubts uh people who are not fairly seasoned experts and, and tend to see the the dark work of the aliens and everything or whatever um you know they're gonna have their own theories too but no matter what we we believe may or may not have occurred the official story is always going to be the official story just in the interest of liability mitigation it was it was interdimensional space aliens it was the anunnaki right yeah. the nunakai or however it's that's how it's pronounced <laughs> the people from from planet x yeah all right man well i think i'm gonna cut it there i think we got a lot of information here a lot of people can can utilize dimensional aliens will end it on that yeah yeah better (laughs) better than that black pill you were feeding us a while ago 
I'm sorry. Now, now everybody's <laughs> laughing and they've forgotten about that, that. I just delivered the most depressing sermon on supply chain ever. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I do want to do this again though, and get in what yeah. you were talking about with, uh, with China and, uh, and their influence on, on European countries and Anglo mm-hmm. countries. I, I sure. think that would be really interesting for uh, people to hear. And, a great uh, angle for the year zero podcast, which is part of the libertarian institutes offerings of, of multimedia, you know, a great angle on that would be the, the regulatory capture angle, how uh, the, these globalized systems of governments and agreements and regulations have been, have been co-opted and manipulated for, for political and economic benefit too. So um, definitely a way of showing how the structures of the civilized world get, can, can be weaponized and employed against us in really unusual ways. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely have to, have to uh, find some time to do that. I know both of great. us are super busy, uh, but <laughs> it's so, oh man, it's crazy. So drive, drive through the Midwest, man. I'll do I'll do a day uh, I'll do a day trip with you in the, in the truck, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll just we'll just record we'll the conversation. We'll, we'll chop it up live for ten hours. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Oh man, it, it's some of these weeks, man. I'm recording like four four episodes a week, and you know, trying to have some sort of a backlog so I can do other things. Cause I'd like to, I like to write and shit like that too. Yeah, man. And so it's just like, Oh, okay. But. And dude, right. and, and, and shout out, shout out to Gord for hooking us up and introducing us, man. This is, this was an absolute blast. Uh, I've certainly missed Gord being around on, on the Gord, Twitter timeline. Gord has some of the most interesting connections of anybody I've ever met in my life. Dude, he, and, and I'll tell you what, that's true for a lot of truckers, man. Like it is, it's a whole, it's a whole subculture that, that people yeah. don't realize. And it is yeah. amazing uh, how interconnected everything really is. Yeah. Wait, plug away, man. Where can people find you? Where do you want them to find you? Do you want them to find you? All that good jazz. Yeah. I mean, this isn't even my real face. This is like one of those 3d printed mission impossible masks. I don't, I, I, my face I, I don't, I don't post video. They, they're not even <laughs> going to see us. I'm, man, right, I, I'm too ugly for all that shit. I, I, I tell everybody if I'm going to post video, you're going to pay me for it. So dude, my, uh, my, like my, my Twitter, Abby, my sister, my sister calls me shout out to my sister for being smarter and funnier than I'll ever be. But, uh, my sister calls me big lots, Jason Statham. And <laughs> it, it, like, I fell off the back of the truck and got damaged on the way. So now I'm at this guy close out the store. Uh, yeah, my sister calls me Big Lot Jason Statham because I've always got like a beard or stubble, a shaved head, and and I'm kind of dumpy and not buff, but in clothes I look like I'm yeah, like really muscular. But uh, that's that that's that retired athlete. We we could be related, but we're we're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I I'm the Statham brother that he won't admit. You know, he's like that's idiot American with the redneck accent. The most depressing <laughs> doppelganger of all time. Yeah, I know. Can you could you imagine people being like, you know, you would look like Jason Statham if you're actually in good shape. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to work that hard to, to look like a world like a world class physique. No, I, I don't really care. I like hair. Um, no, the, the 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 main place to find me is is on Twitter. That's kind of just become my my home for where I can share all my random musings about things. But uh, the Twitter handle is at man underscore integrated. Um, my my screen name is is always Huntsman or some variant of it thereof, um, but some people call me Ross just because they think it's awesome and uh, you know they like to show friends or whatever. But um, but yeah, that, that's where to find me. Um, I will probably say something that offends people at some point. Um, that happens about once a week. Yeah, uh, I, I'm 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 a pretty pretty regular black peel dealer when it comes to political narratives or supply chain narratives. But 
um, you know, I think, I think people have an obligation and a responsibility to themselves to, to be informed on what's actually going on in the world and not just, not just deal in the consumption of junk food news, um, which is just the constant outrage machine. You know, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world, but, um, the things that you want to understand and argue about and, and emotionally invest into are the things that actually impact your ability to live. Um, and that's, that's, that's the important stuff. And I, I do try to kind of stay in that lane as much as possible to help people understand kind of what's really going on in the world. You're the only person I, I've, I've seen or found that's trying to lay out the complexities of the supply chain for mm-hmm. the late, for the layman to understand. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's very important because people don't know where their food comes from anymore. They don't know where their products are coming from. They don't know how it gets to them. You, uh, you call it what PFM pure fucking magic. Yeah. You know? It's PFM, man. It's PFM. <laughs> so. I, I, I stole that term from a buddy of mine who was an army special forces and, and I was doing a logistics contract for, for him and some other people. And, and uh, he, he asked me to explain in layman's details how I was going to do it. And it was very complex. It was going to involve, two or three stepping it through multiple entities, document changes, reselling it in different countries, uh, all of that just to move some stuff that, that you didn't want to move directly because it would be too easy to, to, to identify what the cargo was or where it came from. So I was trying to do multiple things with this, right? And I was explaining how I laid this all out. I'm going to use FTCs. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, or free trade zones, uh, which that's a whole nother podcast on what free trade zones are actually for. But <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, he let me go like five minutes. I laid this whole thing out for him and his team. And then he just stopped me and he goes, Hey man, I get it. And I'm like, I'm not even done explaining this. No, 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 man. I get it. You know what you're doing. You're up here slinging the data around. He said, I don't really care. I'm just going to assume at this point it's PFM. And I'm like, what's PFM? He goes, pure fucking magic, man. And I'm like, Oh, is that, is that, that's like the pixie dust. We sprinkle on everything to just make it magically happen. So, right. PFM to the average person is I go to my store and there's food on the shelves. Right. Well, how did it get there? Well, I don't know. PFM. Right. So yeah. that's, that, that's me. I, I live in that domain of trying to translate PFM into to understandable uh, chunks of understanding how the world actually works to show people, Hey, your fuel doesn't come from the gas pump. Your fuel does not come from the grocery or your food does not come from the grocery store. Here's where it actually comes from. And here's the factors that influence it, what you need to look out for to help maybe live a little bit more resilient life. Right. Yeah. Well, you're doing a service that a lot of people need to pay much more attention to. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to stop the recording. Everybody knows where to find you. Took you to your grave Your pride is how they killed you With the flag you wave just like a fool They promised you a mountain Gifted you a stone They demanded that you throw it Into your neighbor's home And then seize all that they worked for And give it to the throne just like a tool Stand in line and glorify new ways of being cool. 
Seems to me humanity is not something that they're teaching us in school. They dumps down all around propaganda, their pollution. They set a cage up on the stage, a facade for a solution. They build a wall, block them all from this mental institution. It's insane. These crimes done in our names Seems to me authority and tyranny Are both one and the same Till our right to freedom is understood.